Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, February 22nd, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Author Gail Lumet Buckley is interviewed by journalist Jonathan Alter on her book, The Black Calhouns, From Civil War to Civil Rights with One African-American Family. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thanks to everybody for coming on, on such a wet evening. This is a great turnout. Uh, I am so happy to be here um, discussing this book with Gail. It's, it's just an outstanding book. And as somebody writes books, you know, we're always looking for how do you execute one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to execute. And this degree of difficulty, you know, like uh, we'd see in the Olympics with degree of difficulty, the snowboarders, is really high. And, and um, because to, I think David Levering Lewis, who's, who's got a, a quote on the cover of this book, has it exactly right. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Uh, mostly of African-American history, and he says, deeply personal and historically significant. That sounds easy. It is extremely hard to weave together personal history with uh, social and political history in this country. And uh, my old boss, the Washington Post Company, Catherine Graham, did it in her book, Personal History, which won a Pulitzer Prize, um, and Gail has done it in this book. So um, it's just a, a great uh, effort. Um, I, I wanted to start by asking you why you, you wanted to write this book at this time in the first place. Well, um, when my mother died, I discovered all of this material that had been collected by our cousin in Atlanta. Uh, we both, both sides of our families, the northern side and the southern side, never threw away anything. <laughs> so she had this great collection of stuff, as I had had earlier from my, my side of the family. And um, I had fun. I mean, it was fun to put history into this family story. That was the great thing about it, because I love American history. It's so easy. There are no kings to remember. (laughs) And so I put American history into this family story. I had never known, actually, that it was possible to have a happy life in the South if you were black. And what I discovered was, while there were no happy slaves, there were lucky slaves. And that my side of the family, my great-great-great-grandfather, I think that's the... I get mixed up with great. great. Anyway, he he was lucky for several reasons. He could read and write. He lived in a town, not on a plantation. His family was intact. Um, He was the right age in 1865 to get married, to start a family because of Reconstruction. He absolutely could not have made it without Reconstruction and the three Reconstruction uh, Amendments, the 13th, which made him free, 
the 14th, which made him uh, equal under the law, and the 15th, which gave him the vote. So this, get, by the end, by 20 years after the end of the Civil War, the Atlanta Constitution called him the wealthiest colored man in Atlanta because he had been able, he was an American citizen, and he had the right under Reconstruction to do what every other American citizen could do. He um, voted Republican. He, uh, uh, he had a, an account in the Freedmen's Savings Bank, the last CEO of whom, of which was Frederick Douglass. Um, he was, to, uh, he, he educated his daughters. They went to these missionary colleges, which were, are now called historically black colleges. But then they were colleges founded by white philanthropists and from the North with Northern white teachers who were educating the first black teachers in the South, which was what my family, who they were, because it had been illegal for blacks to learn to read or write. Free blacks as well as slaves. Couldn't, it was illegal for them to be educated. So now they could be educated. And they just flew with it. They had this great life. And by the time of Plessy v. Ferguson, half of the family moved north. The rest of the family stayed south. And the people who stayed south were as successful and happy, if not happier, actually, than the people who went to the north. Because in the south, there were fewer choices. They were oppressed politically and socially. But so they turned inward to family, school, church, clubs, all of this. And there were fewer broken marriages, few, less alcoholism, less to fewer divorces. And in the North, where there were more choices, though they were equally successful people, if not more so, um, they were less happy. So it was interesting to me that all of this was going on, which I had no idea. And they were less religious in the North. Oh, also, absolutely right? less religious, except for my great-grandmother, who was uh, a religious seeker. So it's kind of like family and religion versus freedom. Family, they, religion, community versus freedom. There was uh, certainly a sense of, strongest sense of community in the South because they had nowhere to turn. And the, the, the black women in the middle-class black culture never came in contact with white people. So it was as if they had this little world all to themselves. Which was reproduced somewhat in the North later on, but we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, I want to back up a little to... Um, uh, the ancestor you're talking about, your great-great-grandfather's name was Moses Calhoun. Um, what was his relationship to the Calhoun family of South Carolina, and, and who was Andrew Bonaparte Calhoun? Okay. His owner was Andrew Bonaparte Calhoun, and... Um, and Moses was named for Andrew Bonaparte Calhoun's uncle, who was called Moses Waddell. Moses' sister was named for um, his aunt. Uh, Andrew Bonaparte Calhoun was a doctor. He was a cousin of uh, John C. Calhoun. He, was, uh, he had studied in Europe. He was the first man in Georgia to sign Georgia's secession document. Uh, he was a part owner of the only gold mine in Georgia. He was a benevolent basically a benevolent slave owner. My family, the black Calhouns, Moses was his butler. Moses' mother was his cook. Moses' sister was the nursemaid. They were considered favorite slaves. Um, It turns out when I went to Atlanta for my book tour, I met some white Calhouns 
who say that, that they were absolutely related because um, at the end of the war, Mo, uh, Andrew Bonaparte Calhoun gave an acre of land to the cook, uh, my great, 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 I think, great, 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 yeah. <laughs> And that they would not have done if she had not been a, a relative, a member of the family. And actually, Moses' grandmother had been a cook in the Calhoun family. The Calhouns did not sell their slaves. They just passed them around in the family. But you never were able to quite get to, you know, who was a mistress and the actual... No, I had the feeling that it was, that it was the, um, that the mistress was the nursemaid uh, sister who was very beautiful. I had a feeling it was her, though who could tell? Um, they were, you know, they were, they were talk about um, harassing women. They did it with impunity. And, and, but in Reconstruction, give people a sense of how far um, uh, members of your family and those who also got some education were able to advance. For instance, in 1870, there was a, uh, we're going to use black, Negro, and African American sort of interchangeably in this conversation, there was a Negro elected to the Georgia State Legislature, and it was another almost 100 years before the next one was. Uh, so just describe how, um, uh, how Reconstruction and these amendments that you, you mentioned, how they changed um, the educational status and the life and They changed everything. For- they changed absolutely everything. Um, Let's see. Before Reconstruction, they could, there was no freedom whatsoever. There was no education. There was no chance to earn money. None of those things were available. With Reconstruction, it was a totally other, different picture. And um, uh, I'm trying to get it in timeline, but ask me again. Um, so we're... That's good. That's, that's I think, a, a complete answer. So let's move forward now to the... Oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Atlanta was different. Atlanta was not a plantation, it was not a planter culture, it was a business culture. So Atlanta did not uh, stop ambitious black business people. They encouraged it after the war because it was money. And they also always had one eye on northern investment. So they were not, even though Georgia was as as bad as Mississippi in terms of being racially violent and the Ku Klux Klan and all of that, they did not um, stop um, black, ambitious black business people as long as they avoided politics. So this, this fellow who was elected, he was almost a fluke. Because Georgia, unlike uh, some of the other southern states, Mississippi had a governor, or I may have got that wrong, but they had, yeah. Yeah, Not a, yeah but they had a lot of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Georgia had nobody. They didn't send any uh, black people to Washington because there was not a majority uh, of black people. Uh, Mississippi and Alabama had majority black voters. And then another ancestor who moved north, Edwin Horn was an alternative delegate to the 1880 Republican National Convention. So he they was were fascinating. prospering in the North. Yeah, he was my great-grandfather. Uh, and he had been 
born in Indiana, where his father was an Englishman and his mother was an Indian, but he called himself colored because in Indiana in those days, it was better to be black than an Indian. And um, uh, so he uh, was a, a Republican activist in Indiana and throughout the South where he met my great-grandmother and they married. And they're my mother's grandparents. And he, when he got to the North, when he got to New York, after Plessy v. Ferguson, he became a Democrat because he saw which way the wind was blowing. And he was one of the founders of something called Black Tammany. And in the 1910 election, he wrote the pamphlets that allowed the black male, black men voters, they were the only men who could vote, to um, elect a Democrat to be governor of New York for the first time since the Civil War. And they rewarded him and they rewarded Harlem by giving them um, their own National Guard Regiment, the famous 369th Harlem Hellfighters of, the World, War, of World War I, who were the longest fighting and most highly decorated American unit in World War I. And their, their armory is still, is still here. And um, uh, also, they got their first black policeman, Sergeant Samuel Battles, who directed traffic on 125th Street. So that was their reward. They got two rewards for voting. So here in the North and in the South, where Cora Calhoun went to Atlanta University around the turn of the century, at a time when nobody in Jimmy Carter's family went to college until Jimmy Carter, you know, going all this. So you had blacks who were better educated in Georgia than most whites. Oh, yeah. Um, but you describe um, black history as one step forward, three steps back sometimes. And what, do you, what did you mean by that? It's always that way. Um, it always has been in history. Um, for example, this uh, uh, Democratic governor of New York and the Democrats in New York basically were in New York City were Irish. They hated the blacks. The blacks hated the Irish because the blacks, uh, the Irish were afraid that free blacks were going to take all their jobs. But actually, the Irish had already taken the jobs of the free blacks before that. And the Italians were going to come and take the Irish jobs. So it was always, they were always in trouble. And um, so it was, there was a sense that um, there was progress a sense of power, a sense of progress, but they were only two years away from Woodrow Wilson, who was going to, who was the most racist president ever, practically, who sent all this legislation through, through Congress, anti-black legislation, having promised people like Du Bois that he was going to be fair. And that's why Du Bois supported him instead of Eugene Debs, who was a saint. Now, now Du Bois, since you mentioned him, and this is the, one of the amazing things about this book is every, almost every prominent figure you can think of, you know, including John F. Kennedy, who Lena, who Gail worked for, um, appears in this book in one, in one place or another. But your great grand aunt, Lena, Lena. married W.E.B. No, 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 or w. dated. No. Well, they didn't date. In those they, they didn't date. She but fell in he, love with them. He, some, fell, he mad, fell in love with her. He I'm fell sorry. madly in love with right. her. He came from Great almost Bar- married. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, he came from Great Barrington, Massachusetts, where the only other Negro children in the school were his cousins. He suffered no racism. He was about to. He Harvard had said, "Okay, you can go to Harvard, but first go to Fisk and get yourself sort of acclimated." So he went to Fisk, where he met my great 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 aunt Lena, and. 
fell madly in love with her and wrote about her rosy apricot beauty. He said he had never seen such confident young men or such beautiful girls until he went south. And she just thought he was sweet. Willie, they all called him Willie. He, was, he arrived at um, Fisk and suddenly was, make, became a sophomore. Became, he ran the newspaper. He ran the student government. He took over. He was the smartest kid in the place. And, but she didn't take him seriously. <laughs> but he was mad about it. So, all right, so now we're in the 20th century, and you say that after Plessy versus Ferguson, um, that the, the, uh, some of the, the black codes and Jim Crow was in some ways worse than slavery. Absolutely. How so? Well, under slavery, uh, people had value, monetary value. Uh, they were worth $500 or $200 or $1,000, depending what they did or what, how strong they were. Uh, but after slavery, black life had no value whatsoever. And any white person could kill any black person with impunity. It was really that bad. And Jim Crow was the basis for the Nuremberg Laws in Nazi Germany and, and apartheid in South Africa. And, and Jim Crow came later, much later. Jim Crow came after. Jim Crow came in the 1880s in Tennessee, uh, and Jim Crow basically uh, moved north. It moved all over the country. Um, yeah, but I mean, that was really kind of a revelation to me that this particular kind of very rigid segregation and and codified racism did not start in Europe. No, no, it started uh, in America. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So, um, uh, just a couple of other uh, just other names that sort of passed through this 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 story. So Fisk University was built partly with money loaned by Samuel Clemens. Is that maybe that? Well, he certainly supported the the uh, Fisk Jubilee Singers. The Jubilee Singers. Who it says were the from most the choir. Amazing. They, they yeah. sort of introduced black spirituals all over the world, and they became incredibly popular, and everybody sang them. And um, he said this should be America's national music. Fisk was named for a um, union general, a rich union general from St. Louis, who backed it. And um, But show business and entertainment was in your family going back a pretty long way. Uh, if you think about uh, their connections to the Jubilee singers. Well, and- they weren't really connected. They were there at Fisk. I mean, I think they would have liked to have been connected to the Jubilee. Uh, okay. show business, no, show business really didn't. Show business started with my mother, and it was with my grandmother. Sorry. All right. Well, we will, we will, we will get to, um, <laughs> uh, to your mother, but um, I'm, I'm interested in, I want to start a little bit with your, with your, grandmother, uh, because um, just to give you a sense that this book has these great sort of human stories in them, Edna, your grandmother, wasn't the nicest woman in the world. She was crazy, I think. She, she was born in Brooklyn. Her family were old Brooklyn Republic, Republican family called Scottron. And her uncle was a big deal in the, in the Republican Party in Brooklyn. And she was a fantasist. She read movie magazines. It was the beginning of the movie thing, and she wanted to be an actress. And she married my grandfather, who was also a fantasist, only he wanted to be rich. 
And he knew that no black man in America could be rich by being totally honest. So he was always on the fringes of the rackets. And his fringes involved the numbers racket. And his best friend, who had been an officer in World War I, who became an officer in World War I, became the numbers king of Harlem. And so that was his sort of shady side. And they both abandoned my mother when she was two years old. So she was raised by my grandmother, Cora, who made her a lifetime member of the NAACP when she was two. (laughs) And uh, was brought up to go to these meetings that my great-grandmother had as a she was a do-gooder and was constantly running around doing good. And so just in terms of your mother's uh, career, um, a book by a close friend of mine, Mark Whitaker, called Smoketown about Pittsburgh uh, came out recently. So she goes to Pittsburgh. It's a very good book. She, uh, she start, she st- when she was 16 years old, her mother, who was a long story, had re- run away to Havana, was a Cuban, white Cuban army officer. They came back from Havana, and my mother was happily living with her grandmother uh, and going to girls' high school in Brooklyn, and she needed money, the grandmother. So she took my mother out of girls' high school and sent her to the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club was this huge mob-run nightclub in the middle of Harlem for all-white audience but all-black entertainment, and it was very famous. And great musicians and composers wrote songs for it and shows. And they had this great chorus line. So my mother became a chorus girl in the Cotton Club at the age of 16. And her mother sat in the dressing room every night protecting her virtue. And she wanted to go lindy hopping with the people at the Savoy. And my mother, my, her grandmother wouldn't let her. So she was always chafing to get away from this. So she went to, she was finally, her, grand, her mother decided that it had enough of the Cotton Club. So she took her away out of the Cotton Club. And she went to sing with Noble Sissel and his orchestra in Boston at the Ritz. It's the first black orchestra, and she was the first black singer to sing at the Ritz in Boston. She was a great success. And um, after that, she decided she was sick of show business, and she went to see her father in Pittsburgh, who had this small hotel with a gambling thing on the top floor, secret gambling den. And she met my father, who was 28 years old, who was a family of... um, They were in... uh, Machine Democratic politics in Pittsburgh. His brothers were lawyers in the machine, Democratic machine, and he had a patronage job. And he was 28 and she was 20. In fact, she might have even been 19. She wasn't 20, she was 19. She'd never had a date. And she married this first man she dated, who was my father, who happened to have been a high-stakes bridge player and had a girlfriend who he never gave up. So it was not... Exactly, a happy marriage. So, so this is in the late 30s, and uh, your mother would be 100 years old if she were alive. Yes. Uh, she died in 2010. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about what she was like. It was fascinating to me that even though your grandmother uh, wasn't such a great mother, your mother, when she did have some time for you, which wasn't always, but... She, you thought she was a pretty great mom. Well, she was fun. And we had, she found out, we both, she taught me to read. And we were really into books. Really, and she loved reading. And I loved reading. And I would see, I never didn't, I didn't see her every day, obviously. But I was always with her at Christmas, always with her in summers. 
and we would travel. And I will never forget travel, going to Europe sometime in the 50s. I was by myself. I often traveled by myself across the ocean, across the continent to meet them. And the minute I walked into her hotel room in London, she said, you have to read this book. And it was the first James Bond. <laughs> so that was the kind, I mean, we had this great, and she, we loved movies together. We loved old movies. And she had her favorite old movie stars who she taught me to love, like Leslie Howard. And um, so she, we had fun, fun together. In fact, Another book that, made, that she brought into my life, we never had discussions about life, but she gave me, she left a book on my bed called The Stork Didn't Bring You. <laughs> and that was that discussion that we didn't have. But, but a lot of the time she wasn't there. And when uh, the author of Eloise at the Plaza uh, in, in the biography uh, that describes who Eloise was based on, you're one of the people. Eloise was based on many people. Kay Thompson, the children of Kay Thompson's friends. Kay Thompson was an amazing woman. She was my mother's vocal coach at MGM. She taught everybody at MGM to sing. She was fabulous. She was very, she had a great um, sort of sub, a very quiet showbiz career on her own because she was a dynamite performer. And um, she we, we were always together in Europe or whatever, and she had this whole list of kids like me, sort of, who were showbiz kids. Liza was one of them. I mean, these are younger than I. Um, oh, I can't even remember all of them, but they were people who would, used to say, Hel- uh, room service, please. I was used to saying room service, please, because I grew up in hotels. <laughs> she thought that was so amazing. Kids who were used to saying room service. So let's just back up a little bit on your mother's career. So she became really famous in World War II. Yeah. Why? Because Walter White and Wendell Wilkie went to Hollywood to say, you have got to change stereotypes about blacks, Asians, and uh, Latins because of the war, because of the Allies. And they were, that's what they were going to do. And she came along at just the right time. She went to Hollywood to sing at a place called The Little Trock, and she became the toast of the town. She, she had the, the talent and the ability to be the star that they needed. And Roger Edens, who discovered Judy Garland, discovered her and went every night at the Little Trock to hear her, took her to, hear, took her to MGM and, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Louis B. Mayer, um, said, okay, you know, she's, we're going to give you a contract. And it was just in time for, world, for the GIs in World War II to have their own black pinup. So she was the pinup for the Dis- and Tuskegee Airmen. She was always embarrassed that she was the only one. Yeah. And the Tuskegee Airmen, she was the sweetheart of the, of the 99th Pursuit Squadron. But elegant and not, not a pinup like a sex symbol pinup. No, no, no. She no, was no. the she, girl she, next door kind of pinup. Well, she was a girl next door who was also had the NAACP had her back. So she had, I mean, Walter White would say things like, don't wear a dress with writing on it. Right. This is not the Walter White from Breaking Bad. This is <laughs> Walter White, who was head of the NAACP. And he, they, she was absolutely, in, she was their creature in a way. So she had to always be perfectly behaved, perfectly dressed. She got sick of it, but she, that's what she did in the beginning. And there was one song that she was really associated with, right? Stormy Weather. Stormy Weather. Which had really been Ethel Waters' song. So it was always, there's always that tradition. There's always somebody who comes before you and somebody who comes after you. You can watch it on YouTube. It's very affecting to this day. 
Lena well, Horne's storm, Stormy yeah, Weather. Yeah, That wasn't her favorite. Her favorite was Cabin in the Sky because it was directed by Vincent Minnelli, who was a genius. Now, she... Um, she had politics and and from a pretty early period. And how did she know Paul Robeson? Well, my great-grandmother was his mentor in the Big Brothers and Big Sisters. He was an orphan almost. His mother had died. And my great-grandmother, Cora, took care of him. And she tried to get him a scholarship to uh, Princeton because he grew up in Princeton. But Woodrow Wilson would not have a black student at Princeton. Princeton didn't have a black student until after the war. And um, so uh, Paul, she knew Paul was a family friend. And when she went, actually her political education came at Cafe Society. Cafe Society was the only nightclub in New York in 1940, which was integrated. Uh, The uh, customers were black and white and the performers were black and white. And it was actually the front of money laundering or whatever you want to call it for the American Communist Party which my mother couldn't, didn't know and couldn't have cared less. She didn't know a communist from a Republican. But uh, when she auditioned there, she sang Sleepy Time Down South and Down Argentina Way. And this wonderful man, Barney Josephson, who ran the club for the party, his brother had died in Spain and he'd been a great hero. And the party said to Barney, would you like to run a nightclub? Barney loved music. Yes, he said. So um, Barney said, you can't sing those songs. You can't think, people will think you're passing or people will think you can't think a nice song about the South. How, you don't know anything about politics. So he educated her. And then Paul came along and educated her because Paul used to go to the cafe society. And Paul said, whatever you become, you must never, never, never forget the people down the line, the Pullman porters. You must never forget the poor people. And so that's why she got into politics. Um, and did she get blacklisted for a time? She was blacklisted, yes, in 1950, basically because of her friendship with Du Bois and with uh, Robeson. And, um, How long did that last? Well, she couldn't be on national t- network TV for like 10 years or make a movie for six years. But she went to Europe and she did nightclubs. She made a lo- lot of money in nightclubs. She was one of the highest paid performers in nightclubs. Um, so, um, so you, uh, your, your parents are divorced and you very much like your stepfather. I love my stepfather. Um, and you had a brother who died yes. young yes. and he was raised by my your father. father and you were stayed with my your mother. My father said, I, you can have, you can divorce, you can have a divorce, but you, I'll keep the boy, you keep the, the girl, which was of course a very cruel divorce, but that was the way it was in those days. Nobody thought it was cruel. So then you you go to Radcliffe um, and describe Radcliffe uh, in the uh, um, mid fifties, late yeah, mid to late fifties, and especially tell the story about the women's basketball oh. team. Well, Radcliffe and Harvard didn't seem to have a racial problem, but they had a sexist problem. There were places that women couldn't walk. There were elevators that women couldn't go into. There were libraries that women couldn't study in. And I had a friend, a dorm mate, who was on the Radcliffe basketball team. Her mother had been on the Radcliffe basketball team, and her grandmother had been on the Radcliffe basketball team. And she went, she was in a match with Tufts. It was a champion for the, like, New England 
private school or college champ, Ivy League women's champion or something. And in the middle of the game, the Harvard basketball team started sauntering on the court and said, get off, it's our practice time. So they had to get off and give up the game. And that was typical. I mean, the sexism was unbelievable. But I loved Harvard. I had a great time. And then you started working on JFK's 1960 campaign. 1958 re-election. Oh, re-election. re-election and a Senate. lot of pe- people in my class did. He, I don't know what he appealed to us because he was young. He was the first president born in the 20th century. He was my mother's age. Um, and he, he had been to Harvard. So we, we were sort of, half my class went uh, to, work, to work for him. And then later on, half of them went into the Peace Corps. And the other half went to the Justice Department. So he spoke to my generation. Did you feel like you knew him or was he a well, distant he was, figure? Yeah, well, he was, he, yeah, well, then I got to know him because I worked on the campaign. He was funny. He was self-deprecating. He was not a blowhard. He was um, that generation of World War II veterans who kind of had had a tough war, and he, had a, he was sort of relaxed and fun. Um, and it's interesting, some of the other people who um, were not particularly racially enlightened, like I was very interested to learn that Andy Griffith, who I'd always respected, uh, refused to play opposite any African-American actors. Well, my mother, the producers of a show called Destry, wanted Andy Griffiths to star at Destry and wanted my mother to star in it, and he refused to work with her. He said, I'm not working with a Negro. Wow. Um, so and so you, you work in the Kennedy re-election campaign, um, and then... Um, you got involved uh, with the uh, founding of SDS. Well, uh, not really. I went to work for the National Scholarship Service and Fund for Negro Students right after Kennedy was elected. And they sent me to um, the National Student Association Conference at the University of Wisconsin, where I met these SDS people, incredible people, and the Young Americans for Freedom, who were the sort of Buckleyites of the day. They were the right-wingers of the day. And the young... the um, Young, the, um, the SDS people were actually, they were part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, were my friends. And they were um, the youth part of the student, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Yeah, they, they, were the they young become more, SNCC became more radical. Much right? more radical. SNCC yeah. at the time that I met them, they were, it was a totally integrated. They were all religious. I've never seen so much. I never knew young people to be so. All the white Southerners had found God or found Jesus, and that was why they were um, integrationists. And the uh, white people were, a lot of them were Jewish. A lot of them were, um, it was just a great group. And then, unfortunately, um, Black Power came along. I had gone. I was met, grown up then, but married by then. But it was Black Power was um, was I think ruined the civil rights movement because the people who were running Black Power were not good people. Stokely Carmichael and um, I, I'm not. I shouldn't say they weren't good people, but I didn't feel they had goodness in their hearts. They certainly weren't religious. Did they insult you? Oh no, no, no. Nobody insulted me. This was my feeling about them because it was violent. And we had been brought up about nonviolence and Martin Luther King. 
nonviolence was the absolute credo. That was the word that all of the SNCC people used, that all of the civil rights people used in the early 60s. Did you meet King? No, no. Um, but, I, but I met um, uh, the Georgia... Um, John, John Lewis. John Lewis. Yeah. And also, and the, um, 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 he just died. Julian Bond. Julian Bond and yeah. John Lewis. Yeah. And, and wonderful, wonderful. And, and um, Tom Hayden. Yeah. He was fabulous. Yeah. He was actually, a little bit actually, feisty. I actually met King when I was a kid. Oh, lucky you. He came to my house. Um, so you were married to Sidney Lumet on the day after the Kennedy assassination in 1963. So I guess November 23rd, 1963 was your... It was a nightmare. That's yeah. all I can say. And the then, was a nightmare. So, yeah, t- you talk in the book a little bit about that day, and then I find it, find it very interesting that you, you divorced him after seeing a doll's house on TV. Uh, so if you could, if you could <laughs> talk, about, talk about your marriage to I am ashamed Sydney. to say that I was probably the least liberated woman, one of them, but it was my generation. We were totally unliberated. We did not expect to make money with... We expected to get cute jobs or interesting jobs, which I did. I had a great job at Life magazine where I was paid half of what the men who did the same job I was paid. Um, then I married Sidney, who was a wonderful man, but who did not want me to work. So I had to give up my fabulous job that I loved and become a housewife. And um, he was very controlling. He was a director. And one of his dictates was that if he was making a movie... I couldn't go out at night or anything, so I'm okay. But um, how did he explain that? Because I think for a modern audience, it's I mean, ridiculous. I think some it's ridiculous. But some it's of the, the older people it's might relate to this, but younger people, they're they're just it's like mind blowing. It kind is mind blowing. I don't idea. know. How I put did up you with ever it. say, um, "Honey, um, I kind of want to go out no, tonight"? No, I never did. I was obedient. And uh, finally, I saw, I did see, this is such a joke, it's so stupid. I saw this play on television of the doll's house, and I said, my God, that's me. So I didn't instantly go to divorce. I said to him, that's me. And he said, you need a shrink. So I saw a shrink. <laughs> <laughs> Who said, um, I'm not trying to save your marriage, I just want to save you. And at the end of the shrinking, I decided I did want a divorce. And I mean, I have total respect for Sidney, but he was, and I was his, he was a lot older than I. He was like 20 years older and I was his third wife. So I can't blame him. That was the way he was brought up. And, and uh, tell everybody a little bit about Kevin, who you ended up getting married to. Kevin is my second husband. Kevin was a foreign correspondent in Vietnam for four years. He is a feminist. Uh, he went to Yale. Um, he is a perfect, perfect husband, and I love him dearly. And he's recovering from a stroke, so he's not in great shape, but he is in great spirits. And that's the story of Kevin. Yeah, he's, he's brilliant. You he's know a, Kevin. He is one of my favorite people. I, I love Kevin. Um, so tell us a little bit about what happened in the 70s. Your mother didn't have a very good decade. What? Why and how my did she stepfather get over and my brother and my grandfather all died in this, between 1971 and 1972, and she sort of lost it. 
Uh, but Alan King, who was a cousin of, uh, who was he a cousin of anyway? Maybe it was, my, uh, oh, of Lenny, my stepfather, got, talked her out of, uh, talked her back into show business. Because she had retouched that I'm never going to sing again. I've had it. And he said, no, come back, come back. So she went back and she sang in Long Island at a Westbury. And she made the mistake for her of singing one of the Beatles songs, Mother Mary. I don't know the rest of it. Mother Mary, something or other. And she started crying. And she was so mortified. She said, I'm never going to sing that song again. I'm never, because that was not the way her show, her show business was not about showing your feelings at all. You, were, you performed and you were perfect, but you did not cry. You did not do any of that. So it took a while for her to get herself back in. And then, of course, in 1980, she did her second, her, her one-woman show, which was amazing. Huge on Broadway. Huge comeback. Yeah. Uh, not, not really a comeback so much, but a... A return. A return. And, we don't uh, like the word the, uh, Everybody went... Anybody of any prominence in in American arts went yeah, to that it was, show. Yeah, it was amazing. She got reviews that you've never seen, and uh, because people finally saw her in a new light. She had always been beautiful. She'd always been perfect. She'd always been a wonderful singer. Now she was an even better singer. She was even better beautiful and even more beautiful in her middle age. She was in her sixties. Um, and and. Um, and then uh, how did she feel about you? Um, I know this, this book came out after she died, but you got interested in the family history when she was still alive. Yes, did, yes. did she like the fact that you were kind of pulling all this together? She did. She liked it very much because she didn't know really about her Southern family either. And when she got all this material from our cousin, who was a genealogist as well as a librarian, and all this family history, she was very excited about it. Um, I think we have time for some questions. There's some, uh, somebody have them. If not, uh, I can continue to uh, ask. Oh, you do have them. Great. Okay. We have about, uh, we have about uh, almost 15 minutes for, for questions. Um, uh, <laughs> I knew that people would have really good questions. So this is, the, but some of these you might not know the answer to. Uh, I bet I won't. If it's did, a date, I won't know it. Did MGM's Louis B. Mayer have any scenes cut from Lena Horne's movies for being shown in the South? It wasn't Louis B. Mayer's fault. It was the South would not allow any film in which a black person was not a servant or a jungle denizen to be shown. So any picture she made that was not an all-black cast, she was cut out of it. So all of her pictures, except for Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather, were cut out. In the South, and it wasn't Louis B. Mayer who did it. Um, so uh, this uh, uh, question—it goes back to um, the 19th century. I, th- I think somebody was so a little bit unsure of the connection to John C. Calhoun, who was a, a cousin of uh, Andrew Bonaparte. Yeah, Calhoun. they were bo- they were cousins. But blood relatives or. I mean, that, that's... Who? Andrew Bonaparte Calhoun? And, yes. So, again, it's a little bit fuzzy. Well, Andrew blood. Bonaparte Calhoun was like the second cousin or third cousin of John C. Calhoun, who was uh, the arch uh, uh, 
white supremacist and pro-slavery person in the Senate. And he was vice president at one point, too. Yeah. He so was the architect, architect. Uh, of secession yeah. uh, and a state, the whole concept of states' rights. They're about to take his name off that college at Yale. Um, um, so let's, uh, this question is about the state of race relations today uh, compared to other times in history. And you mentioned that it's sometimes one step forward, three steps back. Are we in a step back now? I think we're totally in a step back, uh, except I think that I really think that the young people of today are going to change a whole lot, including racism. I think they're amazing. And um, certainly through no fault of Trump, is it going to be any better? Um, Or the Republican Party as it stands now. I mean, it's a joke that the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln. Now they're the party of um, Strom Thurmond. I mean, not even. So I, I, I have, uh, I think it's bad because Trump allows it to be uh, the way he behaves and the way his rallies whip people up, which reminds people of the 30s in Europe. Um, he allows people to not to, for common courtesy to not even exist. So when there's an atmosphere where you don't have to be polite, why should you even bother to be a non-racist? That's my feeling. Um, so uh, there's a question about the film Black Panther. Uh, it's experienced tremendous success, 300 million already. Uh, I haven't seen one it. Week. I, don't, I, I don't go to superpower. But overall, do you think people of color are well represented in contemporary film? Um, and what stories would you like to see uh, um, film explore? Oh, I'd love to see A Life of Paul Robeson. I think that would be That's incredible. a good idea. Anybody here, uh, I screenwriter? I think that would be amazing. And I would love to see, I, don't, I think Du Bois is too intellectual and, and for the do his life story. It's not that interesting. But Paul Robeson's life story would be a fabulous movie. How about, is there any part of your mother's story that you think would make a good film? Well, I think the 40s, certainly, that she was she was alone was supposed to prove that America, unlike Germany and Japan, was not a racist country. She was a symbol. She was supposed to be the symbol of, of American... And she was the first symbol of uh, a black woman um, in the sort of, as you describe it, the sort of post-Aunt Jemima Yeah, yeah. She was the first black beauty symbol because there hadn't been a a black woman who, they just, it just didn't work. Hattie McDaniel was wonderful, but she was not that kind of person. That's an awfully important breakthrough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah be, it is. It was, and that was why that could be a, that could that be a good movie. Paid attention to her. That um, was why she had a, she had the career she had. So, what what can you tell us about the civil rights song? It's called "Now" that was written for your mother by Betty Comden, Adolph Green, and Julie Stein. Yeah, it's written to Havana Gila, actually. So, uh, <laughs> and it was it just goes now is the hour about. And it was banned on the radio in California because it was considered, um, whatever, uh, too radical. And it just goes, it's all about now, it was written for the civil rights movement. 
It was considered too radical? Yes, it was considered um, uh, incendiary because she kept, it's, it's the, the refrain is now, now, now. Like why we can't wait. Yeah, sort of why we Martin can't Luther wait. King, why we can't yeah. Wow. Wow. And it was uh, interesting because she had been invited often to the Kennedy White House after this song was even came out. When Johnson came in, they investigated, you know, you have to be cleared. And that was the reason she was never invited to the Johnson White House, because of that song, recording that song. That's really surprising, considering his record yes, in civil rights. Yeah. But, it, I'm, you know, I'm sure he had nothing to do with it, but it was some minion down the line. Or maybe the FBI? Maybe. Was, was, were, there, were there files on her that J. Edgar Hoover had? There probably were, but, but she never looked at them, and I never looked at them. I don't want to see them. She never wanted to see them. I don't read books about her that I didn't write. <laughs> and um, no, I'm not. I don't. And I don't go on. I don't Google myself. I don't Google her. You know, I don't. I just like to keep it. Otherwise, it makes you crazy because you just get angry. So do you think, I mean, there, there, she's in a lot of books. And I guess it's hard for you to say if you haven't read them. But do you think that an awful lot of what was written about you and her and your ex-husband over the years, what percentage of it is true? I don't know, but I did peek into one book that was written about her where this man interviewed people about her marriage to Lenny. And nobody had a cl- These people who were, t- they weren't even friends. They pretended to be friends. I mean, these are the people he got to interview. And um, were, I remember there was one who said, well, this was a very strange marriage. I couldn't figure it out. He was never in our home, the person who said this. So I just, I have no time for it. Uh, do you think that um, intermarriage um, has uh, the, the dramatic increase in intermarriage, has it changed the way people relate to each other uh, across racial lines? Well, I think it has, except for the sort of rudeness of the, of the Trump people. I think it has, if you go to any army base, the military is total. There's so much interracial marriage in the military. It's fascinating. Um, among the ordinary soldiers it's in the South, and I've seen it because I wrote a military book. I've seen it, and um, it's just this generation. It is not the most. Inter- it is not the most important thing in their lives. The younger people. This is not the big issue for them. It used to be a huge issue. I think it's an issue still for some people, but it's not an issue for the vast majority of people. Um, so I just want to go back to a question we were talking about before, because this, uh, this relates to Trump. Um, uh, it's hard for people who haven't lived through um, these retreats from progress or studied these retreats from progress to understand how long one of these retreats lasts. So the question is, how much permanent or semi-permanent damage is being done right it's now? So, it's so important. If you think about, for example, Teddy Roosevelt, he was a, a pre, he was president, it was a progressive era. The next president was Woodrow Wilson. He appointed, Teddy Roosevelt appointed black men to diplomatic positions. Uh, James Weldon Johnson was an ambassador in South America, you know, to, for America. Uh, 
1912, 10 years later, Woodrow Wilson comes along and resegregates Washington, which had been desegregated after the Civil War, resegregates it. The, the KKK rises again, is most powerful in the 1920s. So you have a long, you have from 1920 to 1960 of harsh racism in the South, which permeates the whole rest of the country and the world. I mean, that's why people flee to France or flee to, to get away from it. And you had, say, from 18, I don't know what, but you had in the, that sort of 1900 period to 1910, a progressive socialism up to um, Eugene Debs. You had those influences, which made it more, it was easier. Even Booker T. Washington, he was, all the rich, right people loved him. So even he was a, a force for good. Um, and then we, then it was better. FDR was a help. I mean, he wasn't a help exactly, but she was a help. And he tried to be a help, but he had the South to reckon with. And he had the Depression and the war also to reckon with. Um, Harry Truman was a decent guy. He desegregated the armed forces. He desegregated the armed forces. And the civil service. Um, and recognized Israel at the same time. It was, it was a political move, both, both but it's still, he was a decent person. Um, oh, then you had Eisenhower. Well, he sent troops to Little Rock. He did not want to desegregate the military. But things got worse after Brown versus Board of Education in, in some ways. In the, because because the in South, the South they, they, they were so... They exploded. It made them completely crazy, yes. and they enacted yes. Yes. some of the yes. worst yes. laws. Since, All of which were since, defeated. All of which were ultimately defeated. In the yeah. end, Brown versus, versus Board of Education was victorious. Because if you look at 19, if you go from uh, 1954 was Brown, yeah. and you go to 1964, and things start to change. So, I, so that was a long period, but it yeah. was the civil rights people won. Atlanta had a black mayor in 1970. Right. And there, were, there was all... Maynard Jackson. Maynard Jackson. Yeah. And there was... Um, so there's always... There's always the two... The, the one step forward always been the two step backwards, but there's always the step forward. And I think now it's scary because I can't see the step forward because they're doing the same things to Black Lives Matter that they did to the civil rights movement, demonizing it. So, but it may... But that's what I want to get... Dig down into how scary, with the demographic changes that are going on in the United States and millennials, as you mentioned, having a very different view, um, is when, when you look at, you know, when Trump has these meetings and, and it's literally all white men in some of these cabinet meetings, um, do you think this is an aberration and this is sort of the last hurrah I hope for this old hurrah. America? I hope it's the last hurrah. Because I think the Republicans are going to find out, they're going to wake up and see that they're going to start losing elections because of, their, because of this last hurrah they're doing. And um, I am no expert on any of this. I just know what I feel when I read the daily news. <laughs> and um, so 
I think it's going, I think it's, it always has to get better. It does get better. This cannot be what's going to happen to America, except for the fact that he's appointing all these horrible judges and these, and so we have to, we have to vote. The kids today, these kids from Florida, they're going to, they're going to prevail. I think they're going to, they're going to vote them out. Well, I think that's a wonderful, good, hopeful note well, for us to end on. Thank you so much, Gail. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.